Hello, my name is Daniel Hamingo. I play the cello, and you are listening to Talking Blues. So you were telling me that you just you were in search of a new bow. Yes. Can we spend a few minutes just sure. talking about a new bow? Because I don't. I don't know much about bows, mm-hmm. and it kind of blows me away how expensive bows are. Mm. So let's talk about how do you know when you need a new bow? Well, for me, it's quite simple. Um, I, the only bow that belongs to me is about $500, and I bought it when I was 13 years old. Wow, so this has a life, like it has a decent lifespan. It does, it does. Um, this, the bow that's mine, that I own, is only about $500, but probably I'd say from third or fourth year of my undergraduate studies, I've just been borrowing things through foundations, through collectors, um, through very generous sponsors, um, up until this April, and uh, yeah. What happened in April? Well, this last bow that, that was lent to me was a really gorgeous bow. It was a Joseph Henri bow, uh, made in the 18-whatever. Um, and I've had it for probably about a year and a half. Uh, beautiful bow. Loved it. Um, and the owner just said, you know, unless you can buy it, uh, we'd like it back so that we can also try selling it. So I said, well, how much is the bow? And they said 80,000 pounds, which I did not have, unfortunately. (laughs) And so I returned that bow, went back to London, England. um, And I've been borrowing small, you know, sort of lesser known bows here and there from colleagues, from friends. uh, And finally, this summer, or at the beginning of the summer, I just said, you know what? I would like to own a bow that I can call mine regardless of what cello I'm playing on, you know, what other offers are made to me in the future, etc. Yeah. This is probably a stupid question, but how important is the bow? What is the bow to you? Mm. I'm honestly, I'm figuring that out. I'm, I've been learning and I've been sort of realizing what a bow could be to me in the past month. Uh, because in the past, you know, you'd go to museums, you'd go to collectors and they'll take out, you know, a couple of bows, you know, if they're generous, you know, anywhere from three to five different bows. And you try it, and you know that at a certain point you're going to have to return it. And so for me, it's always been, okay, I'm going to try this. Okay, let me try that. Oh, this one feels better. All right, I'll take this one. Thank you. You know, it's sort of been a very, you know, non-complex, you know, you just pick it up and you go, okay, I like this out of whatever is here. Um, now that I'm having to invest, you know, my own money and quite a bit of it, there's a lot of variables and I'm having a hard time. So it's, you know, you have the playability, you know, when you just pick up the bow, how does it feel in your hands and your arm? Does it feel like an extension, a true extension of your arm, which is what a lot of you know, cellists and, and string players say is the ideal bow, is when you pick up a bow and it just feels like something that's a part of you um, versus how does it actually sound? What kind of sound does it pull from the instrument? And that is something that um, is not only subjective, but because I'm always behind the cello as a player, 
you have to sort of find a bigger space and you have to play it in front of friends. You ask, you know, another cellist friend to play it for you so you can listen to it. How much, and I know that this, there's no like accurate answer mm-hmm. to this, but how much is your sound, your tone, when you play the cello, is the cello? And how much of it is the bow? And how much of it is you? Mm. Oh, that's a that's a tough question. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that you know, if like like if somebody you said, "Oh, I want to check out this bow," and you had somebody else play the cello for you, so mm-hmm. you can hear it, what it would sound like in front of the cello. I mean, their playing is going to be very different from your playing. Yeah. For me, I've you know when I was studying abroad and and now just even trying to sort of um, evolve in my own own artistry. Um, my biggest priority always was I wanted to create um, my own sound. So you know you have so many great cellists. Um, and even cellists who are lesser known, who are just fantastic and incredible in many ways. But I wanted to have a sound and develop a sound where when somebody heard me, they'd say, ah, that's the Daniel sound. And so I think that's something that I, um, that's very important to me. Uh, but for example, um, the cello that I'm playing on, it's a Francesco Ruggeri, also from a, another generous uh, benefactor. Regardless of which bow I use, it's still going to sound like a Ruggeri, or it's still going to sound like my Ruggeri. Right. Um, I think the bow, it's, I think the bow is actually much more sort of a, has a personal relationship to the player than the cello does in many ways, because you're using the bow to create sound, tone, phrasing, articulation, um, and as I said earlier, the more of a natural extension of your arm the bow feels like, the more the player is going to feel free to to create um, whatever it is they have in mind. So, in your experience of searching for a bow, did that does the does the natural extension to your body? Do you get that immediately, or is that something that takes a while to? mode itself um i think that's also something that i've learned or that i'm learning now uh i i'm a, i don't know if you're aware of sort of this mbti 16 personalities it's a sort of a very kitsch thing that a lot of younger people and you know my friends especially you know almost a decade ago they were all like what's your mbti and so it's there are these four combination of letters that determine what personality type you have. And uh, the third letter of that is a T for people who think and F for people who feel. Um, I am incredibly over on the T uh, aspect, which just means that I think things, I think a lot more than I feel. Um, So the reason why I mentioned this is because when I first picked up, you know, right now I have five bows that I brought back from Montreal with me. And when I first was trying bows, I I wasn't sure. I was sort of, I was reluctant to to just feel, you know, and to, to, um, to share, 
You know, when I picked up bow number one, oh my God, this feels great. When I pick up bow number two, ah, this is, you know. So it was always like, I'd pick up the bow, I'd play something, and I'd say, hey, how does it sound? What sounds bigger? Okay, what pulls a bigger sound? You know, what is more resonant? Uh, but over the past two weeks of just having the bows, I think definitely there's been one bow in particular that I brought back where every time I just pick it up, I just, there's this joy of playing the cello. I just pick it up and I go, oh my God, everything works. You know, and I'll play something else and I go, oh, it's just, it's so fun to play the cello, you know? Um, so I think, I think that I've almost found my answer, uh, but you know, it's, I'm still, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that could yeah. change over time too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, stupid question about a bow. Mm. And, and is it called hair? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so horse hair. Yeah. When you're playing, and you know, when we shoot musicians, sometimes a hair comes loose, or a couple of hairs comes. Loose. Is that a bad thing, or is that just a normal thing? Um. What does that indicate? I, I don't know. I think I think it's a pretty normal normal thing. I think it depends on the kind of music you're playing. Also, if if it's something that has a lot of accents and that requires sort of a lot of force. Um, then yeah, it makes sense that the hairs sort of you know pull out and a couple of them come out. Um, I once had a teacher when I was younger uh, who said that you know people who lose excessive amounts of hair in their performance uh, just means that the relationship they have between the contact, uh, the hair and the the con and the way that it contacts a string is just not right. Um, so there are people who believe. In that, um, there are also, you know, I think it also depends on the, the type of hair, the age of hair, the, you know, how old it's been sitting around in the shop before you get a rehair as well. So, how often would you get a rehair? Oh, for me, I'd say probably once every three to four months, and uh -huh. that would be the longest. I mean, that's the longest I can go without, uh, without needing another rehair. Um, That's interesting about the bow. I, I just I know it's an important piece, but I just never realized how important or how expensive it is. Yeah. Well, how does it feel to be like borrowing instruments? Mm. I mean, obviously, you got to be at a certain level to get to that point where you can borrow instruments. And I would think that that kind of defines how good a musician you are, that you are now in a position to borrow instruments. Yeah, I mean, how good or how lucky, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the first response is I'm grateful. It really, it's, you know, I probably won't be able to afford a fine Italian, old fine Italian instrument, Cremonese or not, you know, in my lifetime, just because the prices just have been so tracked up in the past, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, because now these instruments cost more than a property in a place like Toronto, right. where property prices are already insane. Um, so yeah, very grateful. Uh, but also, at the same time, I would be, I'd probably be lying to myself if I felt that there was a certain sense of comfort in knowing that it's fully mine. Right. Because there's always a thought at the back of your head, right? That says, you know, I need, I need to do, you know, play the next big concert. I need to win the next big competition. I, you know, 
have to go on my next tour and keep sort of proving that I am becoming or I am an artist that needs an instrument of this caliber. Um, and I think the last sort of feeling that I that I have would be it's um, it's like getting to know a person very intimately uh, without knowing how much time you really have mm-hmm. with with them, uh, and you have to get to know your instrument just on such an intimate level, right? When you're not feeling well, when the instrument's not feeling well, when you're under pressure, when the instrument's under pressure, um, but also when the instrument is just absolutely in a, in a happy you know, state and your playing is also in a, in a great state, you know, which only for me usually lasts just maybe a couple of weeks where I feel like I can just play anything and then I go back to, oh God, I sound like shit, you know? <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I've had the Ruggeri now for... It'll be two years this September, um, and you grow with the instrument. You really, and you also, you as a person, as an artist, you know, you have to change um, with where the instrument is. Um, but do you yeah. know how long you have this instrument? Is it, is it like a lease for a year and it gets renewed, or how does that work? Um, I don't know. Oh, you don't know? I don't know. Uh, so the instrument is managed by a gentleman named uh, Rick Heinel, who has, of course, one of the most uh, most famous uh, luthier shops here in, in Canada, in Toronto. Um, and he manages uh, a couple of instruments that's owned by a, a separate sponsor. And so... Um, in terms of the length or, or the duration, I, I really don't know. Um, wow. I don't think I, it'll be taken away from me anytime soon. Um, but would I be able to quantify, you know, I have it for three years, five years, ten years? Probably not. Um, okay, so I find this whole thing fascinating. But where does this all begin? How does the cello come into your life? So we're going back now <laughs> um, a few years a few years yeah uh, 2008 um, I was that would have been seventh or eighth grade for me in middle school um, so when I started middle school they you know the school system gave all of all of the students in sixth grade a chance to try out band instruments for six weeks and string instruments for six weeks and when I started, I was in band class, and you know, at the time, um, <laughs> my father was was quite sure that I had the personality to become a businessman, and he was like, "You're gonna be great. You're gonna make lots of money. You are going to raise the name and you know, and the legacy of of, our, of the Go family." And he's like, "You're gonna go to Harvard, you know." Uh, so I go up to the teacher and I say, "You know." My parents need me to get an A. What instrument should I play? And I was a big kid. I'm, I'm big now. I'm 6'8", but I was still a big kid back then. And the band teacher goes, play the tuba. Because <laughs> everybody was too small for the, you know, for the tuba. So I played tuba for six weeks. I absolutely hated it. I probably ended the, 
the class finished the class with like a B or B plus. Um, my parents were not very happy with that. Um, then I, you know, we went over to strings class and I asked the strings teacher the same question. And I said, you know, my parents want me to go to Harvard. What instrument should I play? And um, <laughs> the teacher says you should play the viola. And of course, if you're a classical musician, especially if you're a strings player, there's sort of, you know, we're joking because all instruments are great, but, you know, we tend to, we like to sort of make fun of and, and tease viola and violists, you know, saying that they're not violinists and they're not cellists, they're just wannabes, you know, sort of. Um, so yeah, I played the viola for probably a year and a half um, and I hated it. So I went back to the teacher and I said, you know, could I play the violin? Um, my father thinks that, you know, the violin would be better at church. And I made up some lame excuse. And the teacher said, no, we have 40 violinists and we have three violists in the class. You're the third one. No way. I'm surprised they didn't recommend the bass. Right? Me too. Me too. I mean, I, I mean, thankfully, I'm glad that I didn't play the bass because that would have been worse than playing the viola, in my opinion. Uh <laughs> Because it would have been heavier, too. Heavier. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I think double bass is a, it's a very special instrument, but I think it's just, that's just a whole another world. Um, and so I went back, yeah, I went back and I said, you know, Miss Goldenberg, um, the viola really isn't the right instrument for me, but could I try the cello? And she looked at me and she said, you know, you're, you're quite tall for your age, you're big, yeah, why not? You know, come back after school and you can try it. And so, you know, I went back after school and in public sort of middle schools or high schools, you have uh, racks of, of instruments, right, on either sides of the walls. And there was this one cello, um, cello number seven. They were all numbered with, uh, with, sharp, with whiteout, you know, um, and the reason why that cello for me was special at the time was because there was a cellist by the name of Alina Lim who had gone to the same middle school and then the high school that I wanted to go to, which was the Claude Watson program at Earl Hegg. And that was the year where she had gotten into Juilliard. Um, and so, of course, you know, when you're 12, you know, you're like, oh my God, the girl that got into Juilliard played cello number seven. Um... And so I was looking around, I said, which cello should I take? And Miss Goldenberg says, mm, seven. And I was like, oh my God, seven. It's the Juilliard girls cello. Gasp, you know, and I was having a little, you know, moment. Um, but I picked up the cello. I didn't know how to hold the bow. You know, I raised the end pin a little bit and just, you know, put the cello on my chest and I grabbed the bow, you know, with my fist. And I just remember just drawing the C string. Um, which is the lowest string, it's, uh, you know, and there was this vibration, um, especially, I think, because the cello, it lies on your chest while you play, and I just, I got goosebumps immediately, um, I just felt sort of... The mo I don't even know how to explain it. I, I often sort of refer to that scene in Harry Potter um, where Harry goes to the wand shop and he tries the different wands and when he finds that, that wand that's you know meant for him, it just there's light, there's a, there's a sort of a halo, there's this feeling that chills. Um, and I think that was quite similar for me as well. And I just drew the string and I 
I just remember, you know, looking at the teacher and saying, um, Miss Goldenberg, I think I, I think I know what I want to be when I grow up. And she was like, what? I said, I think I want to be a cellist. She's like, what do you mean? <laughs> you just, you just tried it, you know, not even five minutes. I said, I know, I know. Um, do you have a catalog where I could order a cello from? And I went home that night and I told my parents, I said, I'm going to be a cellist. And they're like, what are you talking about? What about Harvard? What about Harvard? What about business school? What about, you know, the Go family legacy? <laughs> what do you mean classical music? No, that's for rich white people. Don't do that. <laughs> you know, uh, and that's a whole other story. But yeah, that's how the cello came into my life. What was your relationship to music at that point? Were you, was there a relationship with music? And, and if so, what kind of music were you listening to? Um, so I grew up in a, in a very Christian Korean Christian household um, and there was always some form of contemporary Christian music gospel music you know traditional hymns um, uh, that was always playing in the house um, and I think my mom told me this story a couple years ago but when she was pregnant with me she apparently she's not a big fan of pop music and she's not a you know she really likes her classical and she likes hymns but she said that literally from the moment she woke up until the, the moment she fell asleep, music never stopped in the house. And uh, it would be jazz, it would be pop, it would be, you know, blues, it would be classical, it'd be opera, it'd be hymns. And she would just listen to music just nonstop. Um, so there's that. Uh, and I think also... Um, typical Korean family so I had to play piano I started lessons when I was five but we moved to Canada when I was six and so we had to stop for a couple of years and start again uh, stop and then start but I played I think you know on and off between the ages of five until about 12 13 so I played a little bit of piano um, and I enjoyed singing uh, in my church sort of worship band um, yeah so the fact that you played that one note and I decided this is what you wanted to do, um, obviously it was more than just about music. Mm. That's a crazy story. Yeah, I, yeah. Okay, so I know at that <laughs> point you don't know what that actually means to pursue this thing of being a cellist. Right, no idea. But... Are you now totally obsessed with the instrument and you're going to do whatever to get to be the best that you can be? Um, I think that there was a period in my life where I definitely had that mentality of I will do whatever it takes. Um, I think now I'm starting to grow up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so it's not as tunneled visioned. Um, but I think even when I actually I remember, you know, I came home that night after trying the cello and I stayed up until 4 a.m. And what I ended up and I don't know why I did this, but there's still a file uh, on my computer, which I've. Uh, I've been very reluct reluctant to, to throw out because it's, it was so special. Um, I stayed up until 4 a.m. looking up the entrance exam requirements as well as the, the tuition fees for the top 10 conservatories in the U.S. And this was literally after playing the cello for five minutes and not even owning my own instrument, not having a lesson. Um, and... 
I don't know why, but I was like, I, this is what I'm going to do. This is it. Um, and of course, you know, there were a lot of, you know, difficulties. And, you know, I think when I first, when I came home, my parents were like, absolutely not. You know, we grew up, uh, I think to use the word poor would probably be an understatement the way that I grew up. Um, so, you know, they were like, there's no way, right? Even lessons back then, they were starting at probably, you know, 50, 60, 70 dollars per lesson. Um, and so when I turned 12 in February, I got three jobs and I worked for about seven, eight months to save up several hundred dollars. And then I called my first cello teacher uh, and my only cello teacher here in Toronto um, in October of 2008 uh, after having worked and saved um, to begin lessons. Um, yeah, so I, it really, I guess you're right. The past however many years of me playing the cello 15, I think it's really been, yeah, this is what I want to do. Um, is it in your personality to do this? What was this totally... Had, had you done anything else that you was just so focused and driven based on one thing? Or was this the one and only time and that's what you pursued? Uh, I think growing up, I had different dreams. And it was it's interesting because all of those dreams were somewhat in the arts, involved in the arts world. I wanted, you know, When I was young, I wanted to be a pop star. And then I wanted to design cars. Um, and then I wanted to be on Broadway. I had like a year and a half of doing musicals uh, in, in middle school before the cello. Um, but I think whatever I wanted to do, my sort of big thing was I wanted to make it big. I had a big dream. You know, I wanted to start my own foundation. I wanted to make a lot of money. <laughs> um, and I think perhaps a lot of that probably came from growing up with, you know, parents who were struggling a lot, a lot of the times with money and um, wanting to sort of be that first generation, you know, immigrant family um, or the child of, of an immigrant family, uh, you know, that was able to sort of help his parents uh, down the road. Um, so, yeah. I have to ask, what do they think about your your pursuit of music over the years mm, it's changed a lot um when i first started the cello both my parents were like nope you're not doing this uh, uh they weren't very supportive at all um and then i ended up through the recommendation of my cello teacher here david miller um i ended up going to interlochen which is this ridiculously expensive boarding school um, in Michigan and there's dance, drama, theater, music, comparative writing, um, got a huge scholarship uh, and a work-study position to go uh, for my last year of high school um, and then I got into the Manhattan School of Music which is a whole another story uh, but yeah, I mean, I remember even when I was at the Manhattan School of Music, I think my father would often sort of joke and he'd say, you know, you should just come back to Toronto. You know, you're, anyways, you're going to end up playing in the subway. You know, you're going you know, to end up 
gigging and playing at weddings and church just come back why are you suffering so much just to study at some big name school uh, and then that opinion slightly changed when I um, got into rice for my first masters uh, which I left after being there for two and a half months then when I moved to Berlin and got into Hans Eisler um, you know and there was this ridiculous sort of uh, low percentage of acceptance at that school. Um, I think there was probably about 62 cellists who auditioned and they chose three for that semester. Wow. Uh, and so when I told him that, then he said, oh my God, this school is really famous. This school is a great school, you know, it's a, it's a really great school. And he said, okay, so you're probably going to be okay. <laughs> you know, you're probably not going to play, you know, in the subway stations of... Toronto anymore and then I went to the Royal Academy of Music um, and I was sort of selected as one of, one of I think three or four bicentenary scholars which was this sort of their big scheme that they had where they give you a, a recording contract with Lynn Records they pay for your living and your tuition and he said Oh, okay, so you might actually be successful at this, you know? And then when I got into the Chapelle in Belgium, the Queen Elizabeth Music Chapel, then he said, oh, okay, so I think you're going to be a great musician now. You know, so I think, yeah, his opinion, <laughs> my parents' opinion, they changed. Right, you know, okay, so thought, yeah. how did you, at what point do you know what this entails and what this all means? I mean, obviously... As you move along and you're getting recognized, you, you must know that you're good. Or that, obviously, people recognize that you have talent. You know, from that kid who just mm. bowled one C note to, you know, obviously working really, really hard. There was, there a, point, was there a point where you thought, okay, um, this is what I'm going after and this is what I hope to achieve. Um, I think that probably came about maybe six months ago, three months ago. Really? Maybe three months ago, maybe even two months ago. Yeah, very recently. Only very recently. I mean, I, I've never felt like I was ever good enough. I never felt like the opportunities that I had and the things that I, you know, the amount of hard work that I was putting into was ever enough. Um... Can because, you talk about that? Yeah. Just like sure. the hard work yeah. that you put into. Mm. Can you just give me an idea of what that meant? Um, so, you know, most kids who would go to places like Interlochen and Manhattan School, you know, they come from families where their parents can either, you know, help them out, where they can really focus on their studies and having that college experience. Or, you know, they're American, so they, they can take out federal loans, Um I couldn't do either, and so I was probably working a minimum of 30, 40 hours a week, and it's actually, you know, I feel a bit careful saying this, but I mean, it's been so many years, it should be fine, but as an international student, you're only allowed to work 20 hours legally, and so I would fill those 20 hours through work-study positions at school, um, I would clean the school and clean the, the, the backstage areas of the, the six halls that that school had during the weekends. Um, in my free time, I would 
clean dishes. There was a period where I was working, you know, sort of getting paid under the counter working at a Korean restaurant, uh, cleaning dishes. There was, I would travel two and a half hours to just the middle of nowhere in Brooklyn uh, to go and play a Jewish, you know, Orthodox Jewish gig, get paid $75 and come back. Um, I think the reason why I felt that my hard work was never enough was because my hard work, uh, and it was a lot of hard work, but that was for me to survive. That was for me to even breathe the same air that a lot of my colleagues were just sort of born into, or they were given that opportunity to just, you know, exist. Um, but when it came to cello and just solely cello, um, because I was working so much, I was probably practicing twice a week. Wow. Three times a week would be really generous. Like I was not practicing for the first two, three years of my undergraduate studies. I didn't, I just wasn't practicing. See, and so when I, you said hard work, I automatically thought, okay, so he put in 80 hours of practice. No. So what did, what did two or three times a week practice mean? How many hours were you practicing? Oh, I, I mean, I would practice definitely uh, the, the night before my lesson. So I would probably spend the night, you know, not sleep that night and just practice until 5 or 6 a.m., sleep for two, three hours, go to class and then go to my lesson. And, you know, it, was, it would always be, you know, just not enough. And then um, I would try to practice either after my lesson or the day after my lesson so that I could remember the things that my teacher had talked about. Um I mean, of course, there was chamber music, there was orchestra, and so I was still probably playing the instrument, you know, at least four or five times a week. Uh, but in terms of just practicing, learning repertoire, you know, honing my skills, I'd say definitely under 10 hours a week for the first three years of my... That's crazy. Did you ever question why you were, what you were doing and why you're doing it? Yeah. I think I still question. I still question that regularly. I still ask myself that question regularly. But um, especially back then. And so I remember, you know, third year, you know, starting my third year of of bachelor's at at in New York, and um, I remember calling my mom and saying, you know, mom, dad, I know it's really hard for you guys, but you know, the past two years, I've spent more time working and making money so that I can eat. Uh, than practicing cello and getting better on the instrument. Uh, and I said, you know, I'm grateful that somebody like me and, you know, uh, you know, a person that comes from a family like ours is able to even experience, you know, this great education at, at some fancy conservatory. But I really want to be a cellist and I want to see, you know, how good I can get, but I can't do that without your support um and so that's when my parents started sending me um enough money for me to just eat so that i could work a little bit less i still work still worked and i worked you know but i worked a bit less and that's when i started practicing three four times a week um and there was this festival called nisos new york string orchestra seminar uh it's a great long history um it's a uh a 10-day long orchestra training program that happens in Carnegie Hall during Christmas break. And they 
pick, I believe, eight cellists every year between the ages of 16 to 23. And it was, it's, a, it's a pretty competitive thing to do, um, to get into. And, you know, I said, if I, I'm going to practice my ass off. And if I don't get into this festival, it just means that I don't have a future in classical music, or at least I don't have a chance of, of becoming the cellist that I want to be, that I envision um, becoming. And so I said, all right, two months. Audition was in November. In uh, September, I came back to school. I said, okay, I'm giving myself two months. You're going to work your ass off and you're going to see. And if I don't get in, then I'm going to, you know, change. I'm going to figure out a different route for me. But if I get in, then, you know, that's the sign. You know, that's the sign that I'm going to take and uh, to, to move forward. Um, and I got in. Um, so, yeah. But even before then, mm. even before you spent like two months to totally concentrating, you must have had something to have all these opportunities provided to you even before you got to that point. What do you mm. think it was about you as a person or you as a player that gave you those opportunities? Um, I think that something that, you know, I still try to, to nurture and to, to remind myself of regularly is um, because of the life and the difficulties that I've, I've uh, gone through, Music for me, and especially when I was young and studying with this teacher, David Miller, it was really about um, discovering and relating and finding comfort in um, the lives of people uh, and the lives of the composers. And so I remember working on the Elgar Concerto, and we would listen to a bunch of recordings. Um, then he'd ask, you know, what do you know about Elgar? You know, and what do you do? You know, when was this piece composed? And he was, you know, tell me it was, you know, towards the end of World War One. His wife was sick, um, about to pass away. Um, his country, you know, was just under so much um, pain. And to wake up day after day, seeing that, uh, he put all of that into this concerto. And so I remember just feeling very emotional and, and, telling David Miller, saying, you know, Mr. Miller, I don't know the pain of losing a family member, at least back then I didn't, and um, I don't know uh, what it would feel like to open my front door and just hear gunshots everywhere, but I really know pain, and I know suffering, and that's what I want to share in my playing, with, in, my, in, in the music that I choose, because I know that someone in the audience who feels the way I do right now is going to listen to this piece and it's going to bring a little bit of hope, knowing that there's another person that feels that way. Uh, and so I think that's really where everything started. And so I was technically very, I was a very weak cellist. I had no technique whatsoever. Um, I still have recordings of me playing when I, was, when I auditioned for Manhattan School. Um, and I think that it was probably just the teachers were able to tell how much I loved the music. Um, 
just the amount of emotions that whether they could see it or feel it or hear it um i think that that's what they were probably able to to catch um and also i don't know i mean probably a big part of it would be god hmm. faith miracles um because when I entered, uh, when I got into the Manhattan School, uh, they gave me no scholarship. And at the time, the tuition was 36500 US. And I think the, do the smallest dorm room um, that you can share with somebody was probably close to $10,000. And then you have the meal plan, etc. So it was almost f over $50,000 for one year. And of course, my parents, you know, they didn't have even a fraction of that amount in their account. And so I remember signing up for this tuition payment plan called Sally May. Uh, you could choose either eight months, nine months, or 10 months. I chose 10 months and I applied for OSAP. Uh, got as a very small portion to cover that first payment. And at the time, I think for me, the only thing that was important was that I went to that school, that I moved to New York, which was a city that I had dreamed of living in, and I got to work with that teacher that I just really wanted to work with. And so I read the fine prints of the Sally May tuition payment plan contract. And it said that if you make one payment, um, then you, you, you have to miss two consecutive payments before the payment plan is canceled uh, and the full amount then is billed directly to the school, at which point you're responsible to pay. Then I read the fine prints of the contracts they sent us to live in the dorms of MSM. And if you're under the age of 18, they can't kick you out. So when I had started college, I was 17. I signed up for this payment plan, paid one month, uh, September, then missed October, November. And of course, in November, and by the middle of November, the school had said, you know, if you don't pay the remaining amount, we can't, you know, you have to leave. And of course, my parents, you know, they were like, listen, we can't do anything. Uh, we'll pray. Um, uh, so I, I remember just, you know, talking to my mom and saying, you know, mom, I think I should come back. You know, U of T isn't a bad place to go for music. You know, maybe I can practice a bit more than apply, you know, to, to GGS. Uh, maybe I'll save money and then do this. Um, and my, I don't know what was, you know, what my mom was going through back then, but she was, she was like, no, you are not leaving that place. You know, MSM was a school that was meant for you. It was written in the books. You are going to be there. You are going to thrive. And she was like, you are not coming home. I am not buying a, a ticket for you. Um, and so, it, of course, it got to um, end of the first semester, December. And I, normally kids go back home for Christmas. And I just felt that because I haven't paid the, the first semester's tuition, that if I went home and moved my stuff out during the break that they weren't going to let me back in to the mm -hmm. dorms. So I found a winter um, work-study position helping some string quartet seminar that happens only during the winter breaks, uh, which meant that I got to stay in the dorms for free. And I just stayed, so I never left the building. <laughs> and um, 
come January, the new semester begins. And of course, you know, I'm getting bi-weekly emails, which are not turning to weekly emails that you have to pay your tuition, etc. Um, and first week of school starts uh, and my teacher has, you know, her usual lesson room. And she usually, you know, emails us saying, you know, fill out your lesson times, you know, we'll see you in this room. I never got that email. And so I remember you know, I think it was a Tuesday or Thursday. That was my lesson day. I went to our usual room and she wasn't there. Um, and, you know, I was just running around saying, oh my God, I'm going to miss my lesson. And finally, I met a classmate and he was like, oh, you know, the room, this is, this is you know, the new room. So I go up to her and of course I see my teacher and she's in tears. And she says, you know, Daniel, I'm so sorry, but because you haven't paid the tuition, the school has expressed that I'm not allowed to teach you inside the the walls of this building. Um, that I'd show up to classes, theory classes, history classes, you know, and my teachers would say, your name is not on the attendance. Um, and so I think between the first week of classes starting um, and probably for another two, two and a half weeks, I couldn't have lessons. I wasn't able to go to classes. Um, and I think the only reason why they weren't able to kick me out was because I was still 17 for another few weeks. Uh, and come third week, fourth week of January, I get an email from, and that, you know, and it's copied like the president of the school, the dean of finances, the dean of students, uh, head of admissions, like all the big people at the school. And they say, we need you to come in for a meeting. And so, of course, you know, going in there, I called my mom. I said, okay, mom, this is what's happening. Um, I think the school's finally going to kick me out. You know, do you have the money to book, book a, you know, a flight? I'm going to pack up and get ready to leave. And she says, okay, just let me know how it goes. So I show up at the office and the, the dean of students, uh, the dean of students, yeah, she, she says, okay, we need to wait for a couple more people. Um, and I just said, hey, you know, if it's just about me not having paid my tuition, you're going to kick me out, you know, please don't bother any more people. I'll go home, I'll work, I'll pay off the debt. She says, look, just, just wait, you know, okay. So then this person comes in, then the next person comes in, then the president of the school comes in. And finally, it's a, in a small room, there's, you know, the five heads of, of, you know, of people who are just running the school. And they print a new contract for me on that spot, on the spot. And um, it's, it was a revised scholarship letter and in that letter they said that as long as I continue to increase my jury score that they were going to take care of every single financial need wow and that included full tuition uh, room and board health insurance and so the only thing I had to pay was a student fee which was $500 a year so it went from having zero scholarship um, and when I entered, my entrance exam score was on the lower side. You know, it's out of 10. And I think you have to be over a 7 or 7.5 to be considered for scholarship. I was at a 6. So I was not a strong player in any way. And somehow, miraculously, uh, and I just said, why? Why are you doing this for me? Um, and they just said, you know, we've seen you, we've heard you, you have a big presence at the school, and we want to take a chance. Wow. And, of course, you know, I was in complete disbelief because I was ready to 
pack my stuff and leave. I was already not welcome to, you know, in, in most of my classes from end of November, you know, December. And you know, there was a lot of shame. There was a lot of guilt. I felt embarrassed. Um, to go from that to the school saying, we're going to take a chance. Um, yeah, and that's how I was able to finish my my bachelor's. And I think back then, you know, I was 17. That felt like a sign from the higher powers saying that this is your path. I have taken care of the remainder of your bachelors in every single way possible. So now you work to, to feed yourself and you practice. Um, and so that was, it was, a, yeah, it was, that's sort of how everything started, I think. Yeah. So when, when you had that pressure, when you knew that they didn't want you anymore, but you still stuck around, mm. I mean, that's something. And the fact that they saw something in you, mm. like, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. But back then, I didn't know it was amazing. I think even now, I'm not sure if it, I mean, now I'm able to say, okay, yeah, that was pretty crazy. Um, but back then, I, I didn't have the, the space or the capacity to feel anything. It was just, what's next? What's the next, yeah. Just the fact that you stuck around, knowing that there's pressures, the knowing that they didn't want to have you in their classroom, mm. and yet you didn't leave. Mm. I mean, I think that's got a lot, you know, <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, did you know at that point what you wanted the cello to be? I mean, how your career was going to go? Um... I think, of course, every young musician dreams of being a soloist one day. I think then, at the age of eight, 17, 18, I was, I was too afraid to say that I wanted to be a soloist because there were people that were just so incredible and they were the ones who wanted to be the soloist. And so I remember the first few years saying, I would love to be uh, an orchestral musician. I'd love to get into a really good orchestra you know, and make a good living. And then my third year, I, you know, started both a piano trio and a string quartet. And when I got into NISOS, this um, Carnegie Hall training program, um, and I knew how competitive it was to get into it, then I said, oh, no, I want to be a chamber musician. That's what I really want to do. And that was sort of, you know, I still love chamber music. It's my first love. It's, It's a really... I have so much love for chamber music. Um, and I don't think it was probably until about a year, year and a half ago where I told myself, you know, if you put in the work, um, whether you become a soloist or not, that's not really up to you, I think. I think that's really up to the industry. It's up to, um, I think it's up to conductors. It's up to the patrons who are willing to pay uh, and to support uh, your appearance with a big orchestra, um, whether agencies like you, there's so many factors, but I think that a year and a half ago was probably the first time when I said, you know, if I put in the work to learn a concerto, to learn the program that is needed to enter a big competition, I might have a shot. Um, so I think that's sort of where I am right now. Wow. Yeah. But in the meantime, hmm. Tell me about the things you're working on. 
Yeah, okay. So this past year, of course, was the Rebanks Fellowship, which kept me very busy. It was um, a lot of teaching, uh, especially working with the Taylor Academy students, who, which is a pre-college division. Um, very talented young children. Uh, and gave quite a bit of recitals as well. Um, then there's, uh, I was involved with a couple of organizations playing quite a bit of chamber music as well. Um, I think what's coming up for me this season, uh, so I have a duo with guitarist Tim Beatty, who also did the fellowship with me. Uh, so we're the Beatty Go duo, and we have a, a small Alberta tour that's coming up in October. Um, going to Calgary, Edmonton, and Lethbridge, and then we're teaching also in Edmonton and uh, in Calgary at the, MR, the Mount Royal University. Okay, so I see you playing, I've seen you play with an accordionist. Mm. I've seen you play with a pianist. I don't, I, it's hard for me to imagine what you with a classical guitarist is like, but what, explain what, what it's like to be working with Tim Beatty and what kind of stuff are you doing? Um, it's, I mean, it's, I love meeting new people and I love playing with different instru instruments and I, you know, I love trying different new things and, you know, cause everything I think is just a chance to, to learn, um, not to just learn about, you know, that specific art form and that, you know, instrumentation, but also by collaborating, you really learn more about yourself and the tendencies that you have and the, you know, all of that. So that to me is very fascinating. But with the classical guitar, we play a lot of really, it's a combination of very beautiful lyrical repertoire. Um, so a lot of songs or song-like uh, pieces. And then the other portion of our program is very Latin inspired. You know, so you have the piazzola, you have the defia, you have, it's very rhythmic sort of Spanish Latin music. Um, so that's, yeah. That's what we're going to be presenting. It's the program's called Song and Dance. So, wow. So, is the idea of being in an orchestra completely out? No. No. <laughs> the older I get, <laughs> the older I get. I don't hate the idea of a of a stable paycheck. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, being a freelancer is tough. You know, I. I was very fortunate this past year where I was able to, you know, make enough money to live decently. But the fluctuation of income is really quite big. So, like, January was, like, nothing. And then, of course, you get to sort of March, April, May, June, and it's comfortable. And then July, August, is uh, it's a little bit tough. And then September, October, November is also great. So you have, it's this fluctuation that I think I'm, beginning to sort of get used to um but i've given myself until 30 i'm 27 now and i said you know because 30 is sort of the age cutoff for most of these big international competitions so we have ard which is in munich uh 2024 september and then i believe there is queen elizabeth competition in 2026 and that's when i'm going to be 30 uh or 31 rather so yeah i said after that if I still can't win a big competition and I still, you know, um, if there's, you know, an event that doesn't really catapult my name and my presence and my playing in the world of classical music, where, which is what you need to, to at least attempt at being a soloist, um, 
I'm going to take auditions and, and start my own projects and, you know, yeah. But the other thing you do and have done for many years is teaching. Mm. And I presume that gives you a great deal of joy. Yes. What does it do for you? Hmm. I've had incredible teachers. Um, I think teachers who are not only just who taught me everything that I know, but teachers who really helped me grow as people. Um, so starting with David Miller, who was my teacher here in Toronto for three, four years, then Julia Lichten in, at the Manhattan School, um, and people like Stephen Isilis, uh, Gary Hoffman, Rita Wagner, um, and they always, for me, they showed, it wasn't about Daniel, you need to improve, Daniel, you need to get better, Daniel, you need to work your ass off. It was, um, Daniel, music is about love. Uh, and there's something really special in you, and I want that to come out, and I want that, and I want you to be able to share that with as many people as possible. But the way that I'm going to help you is, is through love. Um, so I think that's also been very much impl implemented in my own teaching. Um, I don't have many students, but the few that I have, it's just... Because um, music is about love. If you don't love music, you can't be in this field, right? Because there's only such a small percentage of musicians who make a fantastic living, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but is it about making a fantastic living? Uh, I'm still struggling with that. I know. I mean, if you look at art, you know, and the purity of it, you know, it, it, of course it's not, right? It's it's something that's beautiful. It's about self-expression. It's about preservation. It's about, you know, um, all of those great things. But all of those great things don't pay the rent right. and they don't bring you financial stability. And I think because I've experienced um, just like the far end of what it means and what it feels like to live without stability, financial stability, that, some, that is something that's very important to me. Mm -hmm. um, so no, it's not just about that, but... Um, I mean, yeah. what I meant was, yeah. we were talking about being like ridiculously rich for through music, mm. but it's possible to make a living, not ridiculously rich living, mm. but make a living yeah. playing music or teaching, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, you also have, uh, in addition to working with classical guitarists and accordionists and other different ensembles, you sing. And you talk, yeah. we, we talked about singing in a choir. Um, we did a video together and right. you sang in that, yeah. which was the first time I heard a cellist sing. Um, is there anything there that you would pursue? That you, not necessarily with the cello or without, but mm. as a singer? Um, so for me, I always enjoyed singing, like I said, growing up, you know, church, choir, and musicals. Uh, but, uh, you know, my third year of undergrad, when I gave myself that sort of deadline saying, if I don't get into this festival, I'm going to change some to something else, I took my first voice lesson the summer before getting into my third year. Um, and my friend at the time, um, he heard me and he said, 
dude, you need to quit the cello. You need to, you need to get into opera. I mean, first of all, you're huge. Your head is huge. Like, that's just so much space for, 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 you know, for resonance and for, you know, for all of this, for sound. And so I remember taking my first lesson with a voice faculty member in September. Um, and she looked at me. It was just a 30-minute lesson at 9 a.m. We did a couple of scales. I sang probably the first eight measures of an art song. Um, and she looked at me and she said, Daniel, if you're really serious about this, I will go talk to the head of the voice department. We will transfer over every single thing that you have, all the scholarships that you have, all the benefits that you have as a cellist, to the opera department, and we will give you an extra year so that you can catch up and and really pursue this. And I said, do I really have that kind of a voice? And she goes, I see Wagnerian tenor roles in your future. And she, and she looked at me, she goes, you know what that means? And I said, no. She goes, money. <laughs> and so, I mean, for me, I think singing just came really naturally. Um, you could just open your mouth and just go, oh, and you know, people were so easily blown away by it versus the cello. You know, I had to work and work and work and, you know, there were just so many rejections and it, things weren't working out and I was, I had injuries. Um, so I think it's always sort of been like, you know, if the cello doesn't work out, you know, you're never too old to, to sing opera. I mean, especially in your 20s as a, as a guy with a big voice, you know, you can start in your late mid-late 20s and you're still okay. Um, How much connection do you have to opera? Not so much, but every, at every, you know, I've moved around so much, but every city, every school, I would always try to take a lesson or two with the voice teachers there, you know. Um, just go and say, hey, I'm a cellist, but I'm interested. I just don't know where to start, you know. And um, they'd always just be so kind enough to, to give me a lesson. Um, I don't know much about opera. I don't know many operas. Um, I haven't played many operas as a cellist as well. Um, but I think what I find singing to be so special, and the reason why I, I'm, I want to incorporate more of this into what I do, is... Um, with a cello, the instrument is outside of yourself. And so the emotions you are feeling, the, the message that you want to convey, it has to, you have to find a very, a channel that's often, um, has to be very focused and it's a very narrow channel um, for, that, for that emotion to really go through your arms and your fingertips, through the cello, through the bow, and then out to the audience versus with, the voice, it's inside of yourself. And so, of course, I know that there, there's technique and there's a lot of hard work, but the fact that that instrument is a part of your body that feels, that wants, um, that desires, it's just there's no third-party, you know, uh, object that you have to uh, go through. And so that's why I really enjoy singing. And actually, um, I'm doing a recording project with uh, Danica Loren, who's a singer and composer. And she's um, starting her project. Uh, and uh, on one of the, on 
five there's it's a, I believe it's a six or seven piece uh, song cycle and so five of them I'm going to be playing the cello and one of them I'm going to be singing wow so she's been really kind enough to to invite me on board and so I'm really looking for that's going to be I think in September um, yeah are you comfortable enough being a singer like it doesn't sound like you've done a lot of singing no yeah but obviously people have told you you have something mm-hmm is it something you would consider pursuing? Yeah, I'd like to. I'd really like to. Um, I think with the cello, there's a lot of baggage with the cello. Um, you know, growing up, the cello coming into my life when you know when I was going through puberty, from that to just really having lived, I think at least a lifetime's worth of struggle and and suffering with and because of it. Um, so there's a lot of baggage, which then comes with a lot of expectations. Um, and that's, you know, something that I'm constantly working on. But with the voice, it's always been so easy and it's always been just so natural. Do you have the same passion for it, though? Hmm... And I don't know if that means anything. Yeah. Um, hmm. I'm not sure. I think it's a different kind of passion. Um, for example, like I, it's not even opera. Right? My favorite genre of music to sing would probably be gospel, R&B. You know, uh, if you take me to a black church, like. I will go up and I will start, you know, <laughs> having a little gospel battle with the worship leader. And, you know, I mean, that's, I genuinely enjoy singing. So do I have the, the, the same amount of passion or the same kind of passion? Probably not. Um, but I think it's something that I, that would be very interesting to, to incorporate more of uh, with, um, with, the cello yeah and does it have to be opera because i i would imagine the world of opera is just as complicated as oh yeah yeah classical music yeah right? no but, i don't think it just has to be opera for me no like for example one of the encores that tim Beatty, the guitarist and i we do is we we uh, play oscar peterson's hymn to freedom hmm. and you know he plays i play we play together and then just at the end um we end the piece by me singing um so I think adding little components like that, um, maybe when I, I think the, the recital programs that I have in mind for 2023 to four and, and four to five, they're already set, but from 25 to 26 season, I'm thinking about um, and researching sort of leads, uh, whether they be, you know, Schubert or Brahms or Schumann's leads to to um, include one or two of those in my cello recital programs. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, that's obviously a unique thing, right? Mm-hmm. To sing and to play the cello. Mm. Um, does it have to be classical music? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, I, I think the thing that I've been getting better at doing is just not thinking too too much, you know, too far into the, the distance. Like, but, I mean, just the fact that yeah. you said, oh, I'm thinking maybe in 25, 26, yeah. uh, the nature of what you do right, 
right? Is you have to think and plan at least ahead. two, three years ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but just two, three years ahead. Um, <laughs> and also, what's special, I think, about uh, not being branded as a singer, you know, because at the moment I'm just a cellist. You know, that's sort of Daniel Hamingo cellist, the giant cellist, but still, you know, cellist. Um, is that I have complete freedom with my voice. Um, for example, there are pieces that actually incorporate both cello and singing. And actually, that's one of my projects that I'm working on. I'm trying to commission a couple of works from some of my favorite composers uh, that have um, both the cello and the voice simultaneously. Um, I believe there's only two or three existing works where it's playing and singing at the same time. Um, and so to also to create new works into the repertoire of cello and also for cellists who, you know, have multiple means of expressing themselves. Uh, that's also, I think, something that's really beautiful and fun. I can't imagine it being an easy thing to play the cello and sing at the same time. It's great. <laughs> it's great. It's absolutely great. They, you know, I think it's also, it makes sense because people say that the cello, out of all of the instruments is the instrument that's most like the human voice. Um, and, it, you know, most cellos, they're deep, it's, they, have, it's, they have earthy qualities, but also the upper registers are really quite beautiful, sweet, singing, uh, bel canto-like sound. And so to have that and the human voice together, I think, is absolutely beautiful. For sure, and especially your voice, which is pretty impressive. And when you met, you know, when we talked last time, you just made it like, oh, but I'm, you know, I sound okay because I'm this size. Even it was so nonchalant, <laughs> but you do have a great voice. Thank you. I I struggled a lot with actually editing those eight bars of that Korean folk song, and I, because you know, of course, when you're listening back, you know, every every musician. At, at a high enough level, they're all they all have some sort of perfectionism, right, inside of them, and oh, it was just it felt so out of tune, and I was like, Brandon, you know, what if we re-record just the eight bars? <laughs> or hold on, I made another recording in a different space. Can we just use those eight bars? You know, and he was like, Daniel, no, I think you just really have to choose from what we got in Kerner, um, and you know, and I ended up making it work, and I think it turned out okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for doing this. Let me just close off my last question. Tell, tell me about what music means to you and with all that you've gone through. Hmm. For me, uh, music, being a musician, having a life in music, it means a, a never stopping or never ending exploration of truth um, truth that lies in music of course uh, in society and life but I think for me most importantly in myself um, we all have one life to live and if I can die uh, just really having understood a good amount of 
my reason for you know for existing uh, on this planet, I think I'd be able to die very happy and fulfilled. So, truth. Well said. Thank you, Daniel, for doing Thank this. Thank you. Thank you for having me.